Tatiana, I'm so excited to have you here with us today. And wait, hold on. I'm going to start over because I don't want to say today because then that makes it sound like it's daytime. And, you know, like people listen to it anytime. Okay, I'm going to start over. Hold on. (laughs) According to the CDC, suicide is the third leading cause of death for young people ages 15 through 24. There are many loved ones left behind grieving these tragic losses. Allianceofhope.org is a website for suicide loss survivors. Ronnie, its founder, quote, intuitively understood what researchers have validated in recent years. Suicide loss survivors are a high-risk population for suicide themselves if they don't receive healing support in the aftermath, end of quote. Tatiana lost her sister to suicide in 2020 and shares her story in hopes of providing help for others grieving after suicide. Gosh, how does one describe themselves, I guess? <laughs> um... I am a mom, I uh, live in Florida, like I said earlier, but have kind of traveled and worked and lived all over the place. Um, I met my fiance in Alaska where we were working seasonally. And now, like I said, we're in Florida with my three-year-old son um, named Jack. And so this is where I lived growing up with the latter part of my kind of like teenage years and young adult life with my brother, Matthew, and my sister, Paige. We live on 250 acres, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And Wow, um, that's cool. Yeah, and so it's we are definitely in our element. We love being outside. We um, normally love traveling, just um, spending time with family. Like, we're really kind of relaxed and um, focused on kind of like keeping ourselves really grounded, which has helped, which I'll get to, I guess, later, because it's been something that we've had to um, really work on and kind of practice. So, um, but we enjoy it. You know, we enjoy gardening. We enjoy, like I said, just being outside. We have a puppy. So explain a little bit about why you uh, approached me about doing an episode on mental illness in me. And what is it that you're hoping to raise awareness about with this episode? Um, Well, I remember like seeing you do this and thinking, wow, this is incredible. And the topics that you were specifically often doing were things, you know, I I listen to a lot of podcasts, but, um, and I love anything to do with mental health. (laughs) Um, but when I saw the things that you were doing, there were a lot of, uh, more like specific topics and things that I wasn't seeing a lot about, which was refreshing. Um, and so that piqued my interest. And then just as like a listener, and then when I experienced this this year, um, one thing that I saw a lot of was that, and like I mentioned earlier, I enjoy writing kind of through my grief a little bit. Um, and so as I would do that, I would get messages in some of my social media accounts from people I knew who specifically had experienced fellow sibling suicide loss. And that is a really specific kind of grief. Um, and so what I realized though, was that like, there was very little resources for this. I have purchased books. I've read so many books. I've, you know, listened to podcasts. I've done a lot of like research into adding things to my kind of grief toolbox. Um, but there's not a lot specifically for siblings. And then I actually had a friend whose husband, um, his father passed away from suicide about two months after my sister And watching them go through this process, her and I realized like, wow, you know, we're experiencing very much kind of the same journey together. Um, And, you know, so, but what I realized was like suicide grief was so specific. 
And so what I'm seeing, though, is that if that's one of the top three, you know, killers of our young adults in this country, clearly there's going to be a lot of families struggling with this. So if I can be of any help or share something where someone, even one person says, oh, wow, me too. I'm not alone. That's huge. You know what? That is so powerful. I that really kind of struck me what you just said is that if this is the leading cause or one of the leading causes of deaths of young people, then inevitably there's double, triple, quadruple that amount of close family members who are suffering hard. Right. And, you know, and so now I I appreciate so much that you're willing to sort of become a resource for others who uh, may have experienced this. Um, So, Uh, your sister, she passed away recently. When did that happen? Um, It happened March 10th of this year. So we're coming up on eight months as of this recording. (laughs) Wow. So very, very recently. Um, A friend of mine told me um, just, it wasn't that long ago that people are now being encouraged to use the phrase died by suicide instead of saying committed suicide. And it really, that was so powerful to me. And it, stayed with me. And I have tried very hard now to change my language, um, especially in the context of mental illness. What do you think about that? Well, actually, let's let's go. Let's do this first. Can you tell me a little bit about your sister and what led to her premature death and then maybe address that idea of the language that people use around suicide? Yeah, sure. Um, And I actually have recently heard that as well. And, um, you know, I'm not very like sensitive either way, because I until recently was saying, you know, each way. So, um, but that being said, I think that it gives a better representation of what happens. And, um, and I've also heard the term completed suicide, you know, or so-and-so completed on this day. And it sounds a little funny, but when you think about it, anyone else who's maybe dealt with this in their family or is currently dealing with someone who is, um, I would say maybe on like the suicidal spectrum of sorts, uh, you know, that it's a roller coaster, you know, it's a journey oftentimes. So not every time I think that there's definitely surprises that happen, but a lot of times, uh, a lot of families find themselves on edge. So, um, that was the same thing for us for a while leading up to her, I would say completion, right? Uh, many times there's attempts or scares or things that you're just kind of always nervous about. You're always waiting for that phone call. And then there's that moment where you realize it happened. Um, and then the other flip side of that is kind of scientifically. So um, that's more my thought on it. But what I've actually read, which really helped me in the grief process with my feelings on a lot of things, but um, was that when typically when someone gets to the point of committing or completing uh, suicide, it is actually like the ultimate burnout stage neurologically. So for anyone to kind of, you know, we want to survive, right? Like if we are under a wave in the ocean, which like, you know, struggling to get out, like we'll do whatever we can, even if we're just thrashing around, but our intentions are to survive. It takes a lot for the human brain to get to a point where it sees death as the ultimate survival in a way, because they're so tired of so many things that it actually, it's, it's hard for us to understand because we're not in that place, but it's like the ultimate burnout stage. And so when someone says, you know, died by suicide, as opposed to like committed suicide, you realize that in some ways, 
it's parallel to like a uh, terminal illness, you know, where they just got so tired that that was the next stage that their body took and their brain took. So that is so poignant. I mean, I had never thought about that, that we as humans, our natural instinct is survival. Like you said, that was such a good analogy that you made about being under a wave. Our instinct is to breathe, you know, in and out. And if you hold your breath, your body immediately wants to breathe in again. And to get to a point where your body doesn't even have that survival mode anymore, that's a very extreme place. And that doesn't just happen in a moment or overnight. Like that's something that builds over time. Typically, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or typically. Yeah. I think that there are definitely exceptions to that. Um, yeah. So what happened with your sister's story? What, what about that? Can you share with us? Yeah. So she was 20 when she, uh, passed away, but I would say for us, the journey with Paige that led to her, you know, getting to this point really began around 14, 15 for her, which is actually, I would say from what I've under, you know, read and, and heard, um, pretty typical. So like 14 to 16 or 17 is usually when mental illness things pop up uh, or get more serious. I would say, you know, really kind of come out. And on top of that, um, going back even further, uh, we come from, you know, we had a, a pretty good, you know, childhood and family life and things like that. I'm very close with my family. We're all really close with each other, but you know, there's definitely trauma, I would say, in our lineage. And so that um, our parents did a great job, you know, ending that. But they also wrestled with their own kind of aftermath. And I think they've done an amazing job. But, you know, as we all have, there's things that, you know, maybe manifest in the family life that aren't healthy at the same time. And so me and my siblings had to kind of process that, as many people do. Um but on top of that, at around 14, 15, there was a divorce in the family. And I think that really affected her. She was the youngest. Um, and that was, you know, the home that she had actually grown up in. Whereas for me, I moved there at 15. So even little things like that were different for us um, because of our, we had a big age gap. We have a big age gap. So the divorce really took a hit on her. But at the same time, I do think that there was parallel mental health stuff going on. Um, and she went through a really, really tough phase with like even substance abuse and, um, but also dealt with some major trauma and some other external factors other than kind of our family life. And so we saw a big shift in her at that point. And, and then she got herself out of it. It was actually really remarkable to watch her do that because we didn't quite know the extent of even her substance abuse until after the fact. Uh, but for someone to be, you know, that young and able to really get themselves out of a dark place, spoke volumes about her, uh, resilience and all these things. And then we would watch her go through seasons of thriving. And then, um, I would say in the last year or two of her life, she began to, again, have some external kind of circumstances and forces that were highly influential. And, um, I think with Paige, we all thought we knew, you know, what she struggled with. We thought, okay, it's anxiety, depression, which are still really tough things to deal with. 
but it wasn't until after she passed and actually we got to see some of her journals and things like that that I think we realized like okay you know me myself like I've been diagnosed with different things and I struggle a lot and so I think I always thought I understood her struggle but it was completely different things like hers was very intense and very different than any of ours and so I think she started to feel like yeah she might have seasons where she was doing very well but she ultimately was constantly in like an uphill battle and between that and some of the sort of external factors the last few years we started to see her go very up and down and very extreme kind of either way um, in terms of her mood, in terms of her motivation um, and things like that. And we were very worried about her. We were mainly concerned about getting her out of her kind of like living and um, just like her situation. We we're trying to like get her to start fresh almost somewhere else and maybe thinking that that would help. Um, but it's really difficult when people are in the thick of their struggle, I would say, on top of the other things that she had going on to think even clearly for yourself, right? There's a lot of self-sabotage that people will do. Um, and then last October, so about a year ago, she attempted. And we'd always, she'd always like mentioned it, you know, we'd always get very worried and it was kind of this roller coaster already. But, and we were always really concerned because you know, like I said, her mood seemed really fragile, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, so we were always, it was always part of the conversation of the families, you know, how is she doing? How is she doing? How is she doing? But last October, it took a very serious turn. And um, it was really, I would say, fairly traumatic. Um, most of our family, people flew in, you know, from out of state, got special military leaves, everything to come be with her when we had to get her hospitalized. So we started to get her into therapy and she actually loved her therapist, told me that was her best friend and she like loved her. Um, she was on medication, but wasn't very, she didn't love it. So she wasn't very consistent with it. Um, but we all felt that if she stayed in therapy at the very least, it would address some of the root stuff because we felt that it was half and half mental illness and some complex trauma, PTSD, some other things going on. So we thought if she could just get through this therapy, you know, and it would help her to process the root of it. Um, and then maybe other things would help with like the symptoms, I guess. And everything seemed to be going well. And I would say around her birthday, which was January, 2020, we did see her start to pull away from a lot of us. So getting very cold, very distant, um, you know, still around, but very like disengaged. And that really was concerning. Um, her mood started to go very up and down again. And, um, but it's difficult because when, then you see someone doing well and they feel, they look really motivated, you know, they're kind of their old self again. You're like, oh, they're doing good. And you feel hopeful. Um, I mean, even the last time I saw her, so all this kind of leads up to March, I saw her three days before she passed and she had even told me something that she had a, a dream basically. And in that she had actually seen herself committing suicide. And she said, I could never do that because I saw everyone crying. I just could never do that to you guys. And that was three days before. 
And I specifically called my mom and was like, she's doing so good. Oh my God. Like we all breathed a sigh of relief that day because you have these conversations where you're like, oh my gosh, they're doing so well. But what we also didn't see, she was wearing a lot of like baggy clothes, but that was kind of her style anyways. But, you know, we realized after she passed, she weighed 88 pounds. And it's stuff like that, that you're like, we didn't know, like we didn't see it. And we were around her all the time. So that was kind of the roller coaster, I would say, where it started to get, it was like a pendulum more than a roller coaster because it, you'd have these big swings, you know, in either direction. And then other times things would seem sort of stabilized. It's so hard when somebody you can see suffering is an adult because you really can't take control over their life. It was that a difficult thing for you to see some of the destructive behaviors and not be able to intervene in the way that you would have. Oh my goodness. I'm actually really glad you talked about that because I didn't even think about this. So most people I say, or I've heard, um, agree that like our brain doesn't finish maturing until I think it's like, you know, in our early twenties or something like that. The part that helps with like impulse control and making decisions, things like that. And even emotional regulation and, um, that's not quite fully mature until our early twenties. And yet at 18, people are legal adults. And so what happened was about um, a couple, about a year or two, I think before she passed away, my mom moved up to Georgia. So my mom really had a hard time because she's in Georgia and my sister and I are based in Florida at the time. So she was, you know, close enough, but also far enough for like, she couldn't just be here all the time, but she would be making phone calls and things with doctors and different therapists and, it was very much like, well, it's up to Paige if she wants to come in. It's up to her if she wants to do this. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, trying to convince her to do, you know, hey, move up to Georgia or go to, let's go get you in school or, you know, we need to get you help. In their minds at 18, 19, 20, you know, they're adults and they are, but they're not quite fully developed to make those long term decisions, including suicide. You know, they're thinking in that moment, oh my gosh, everything's so overwhelming. But the brain's not even fully formed to like say, no, wait, hold up, think about this. So it was really difficult. And I think people say that like the teenage years are the hardest or the toddler years are the hardest. I think those late teens, early 20s, from a parenting point of view, probably have to be some of the hardest. So with my sister's therapist, uh, like I said, she loved her, loved her. Well, she stopped going. And it was really sad because... At one, even the very like last two or three times that I hung out with her, which was not long before she passed away, uh, she was very self-aware, which is like a huge step. So she would even say, oh yeah, I did this, but we all know it's because I'm, I have these tendencies, you know, and she'd kind of roll her eyes or be like, my therapist says, this is why I do the things I do. And so she was really starting to like get it. But when she slowly, when she was kind of in the downward slope that led to her, you know, committing suicide we realized one of our warning signs was she stopped going to therapy and my mom thought, Oh, no problem. Let me call the therapist and not even ask for anything, not, you know, intrude on privacy, but just say, Hey, look, can you at least like call her and ask her to come in? Or can you call her and say, Hey, you haven't been to your last, you know, six appointments. Let's get you on the books. And the therapist was very black and white about, I'm sorry, but you are not my patient and for privacy reasons she's an adult, you know, this and that, sorry, and didn't call her. And so that's not that we blame anyone, but it's one of those things where you're like, 
as a parent, I watched my mom, you know, as a much older sibling, we were sitting there going, what can we even do? That is heartbreaking. And I'm not blaming the therapist either, because I understand they do have certain things they could get in trouble if they whatever. But it's so hard as somebody who's suffering in the aftermath. Yeah, yeah, that's really tough. Many people who suffer a tragedy like the one that your family had to suffer deal with depression and other forms of mental illness, PTSD afterwards. So how was your family and you, how were you specifically affected after her passing? Well, hers was interesting timing because it was March 10th and then March 13th, the world kind of shut down. I feel like anyone who's experienced, you know, a major loss or something quite traumatic this year will understand that it adds a whole new layer to like just 2020 in general. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like that to me is just yeah, mind boggling. So I will say that I would say my whole family really were in shock. So we left her service even and went right to the grocery store and had to like stock up because we had just found out that all this was going on. You know, we didn't even know what was up or down. So um, and then I found myself, you know, all of a sudden working from home with my toddler and grieving, but not really able to, because I was just in survival mode. And that was the time that everyone is, you know, surrounding you a lot and everyone's blowing up your phone. And I appreciate that so much, but I remember it being so overwhelmed by it and thinking, I can't even like savor this, or I can't even appreciate this fully because what I really need, if someone really wanted to support me right now, they would like come clean my house because I can't even relax and rest because I, I look around and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, there's so much going on. Or can someone please come and entertain my toddler for an hour because he knows mommy's sad and he's extra needy and like, you know, I'm trying to give him everything, but I can't. And now I feel bad about it. So very, I felt very like, like I was in a war zone in a way. Um, whereas, and I think my whole family kind of felt that way. We all were just like, okay, how do we move through this? And that's what that first kind of month felt like. But I will say that it brought forth, um, or it it still continues to bring forth our own kind of mental illnesses and our own struggles or things that we need to process. Right. So, um, I struggle a lot with like anxiety and so having, my son and my partner have um, asthma and things like that. So when everything started happening with coronavirus, now I'm my anxiety and I do have OCD. I was like ruminating on, Oh my God, I can't lose someone else. I can't lose someone else. I can't lose someone else. And that was just constantly going through my head. Same for my mom, Um, like that hypervigilance, which is really specific to suicide grief. Um, I would often look at my son and think, Oh, I have 16 more years with him. What if he does the same thing as her, you know? Um, wondering even with my parenting am I going to cause something to traumatize my son and now he's going to be in this position in a few years um so it was a lot of I would say it it kind of brought forth a lot of anxiousness um combined with the things that were going on in the world so it was really hard to stay very grounded um we did have so there's a huge percentage of there's actually a huge spike, first of all, in relationships that end in divorce when there's a suicide loss. And I will say that my relationship without, you know, really putting it out there and I'm really proud of us. I'm so proud of us, but we struggled, you know, and it was really difficult. Um, 
happening for my partner to see me going through this. And what helped and I'm so thankful for is that friend that I spoke about earlier who her husband was dealing with suicide grief because she would send me messages that were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said this or this or this. And then me being the one that is the partner, the person going through it would be like, no, I said that like two days ago, you know? And then we also, there's also a huge, huge spike in a second, third, fourth, you know, consequential suicide attempt within a family. And we did have that with um, an extended family member. And this person also struggles with some mental illness and we watched it in kind of real time affect him from the time he came down for the service to about two months after her passing with a lot of that ultimately ended up in him also being hospitalized. So those first two months, I would say after she passed, I will never forget in my entire life. And I don't think my whole family will either because that period of grief and mourning was really stolen. I just, I listen to this and I am just like, so, I mean, it's, it's humbling because I don't know, I, this whole COVID thing, being somebody with anxiety and OCD was really hard for me. And I started having panic attacks and I started to worry more about my family members and things like that. But I was not dealing with a tragedy, like losing my sister. I mean, it makes me almost cry thinking about it. And I, I don't know how, how, um, you guys made it through. I mean, there's no other choice, right? The only way to the other mm-hmm. side is through it. it. It is a period of time that I don't, um, I'll never forget. That's it. You know, but like, I worry a lot about my son and the fact that he was home with me for months and months um, in my most raw state. Cause like now I can handle it better. But back then I was just often, you know, he would find me in the closet crying and like trying to hold it together. I really, yeah, struggled with making sure that he's okay. Um, but allowing him to also see, right. And talk about these things and like, know that it's okay to miss someone. And he's actually gotten very like matter of fact about it. Um, and you know, one thing she wrote in the letter to my son, she was actually his godmother, um, was, you know, stay fighting, stay strong, things like that. Basically don't do what I'm doing. But I do feel that, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm wrong, but I do think that we're going to see, you know, this be a common kind of struggle for our young people, at least for a while. And whether it's his generation or the current one or everything in between, um, you know, anything we can do to share to be like, no, like, you know, you don't have to have it all figured out by this age, you know, anything to help that group, right? Like, that's huge. So, well, no, I think you're right. I think um, there's a lot of things that are contributing to to that being a possibility, mm-hmm. like isolation. Right. Um, I mean, even with COVID, like the the effects of what's happened during 2020 are going to extend well beyond this year. And um, part of that mm-hmm. is all the isolation that happened during this year. But then also, technology provides its own kind of isolation. And then they're not in school. You know, a lot of them are doing online school. And a, a teacher friend of mine was saying that the kids, they their district won't even require them to keep their cameras on. So the teachers are literally teaching to a black screen. It's ominous to me because it's like, it, you know, because of laws or rules, they're not allowed to require them to turn it on. But the kid has no connection with even a face. No one can see them. You know, they are hidden. They are it's just it's it's really hard it's really really tough 
so I grew up, you know, technology was a thing, but not quite as much as like her generation. And I watched her, um, you know, right. Having posting selfies and things at like, I don't know what age, but I remember watching her experience a lot of like cyberbullying and, um, underneath one of her pictures that she had posted, this was when she was in junior high, I think there were so many people saying, mind you, I mean, she's stunning, but there were so many people saying like, oh, you're ugly, you're this, you're that, making fun of her appearance. And when I said, Paige, what is all this? Like, who are these people? You know, I'm going to say something. And she goes, oh, that's just how things are. Like, she was so matter of fact about it. And it made me so sad in her late, late, late teens. And, you know, in her, when she turned 20, when people had found out that she had been hospitalized, she was getting ridiculed for that all over Twitter. And, you know... It just, and this was all pre-COVID, right? So it's like, there's just, and some of those same people, I'm pretty sure are the same ones that came to her vigils. I'm not, again, blaming cyber bullies for her doing this, but it all played a factor. And it's so easy to be cruel when you don't have to face any consequences for it. So what advice would you give to a young adult who might be in your sister's situation sometime soon. Goodness. I would probably tell them to just keep trying to find what I call like tools in your toolbox, you know, so don't get discouraged if this path doesn't work. You know, if you're trying, whether it's medication or a therapist or, um, you know, anything, right. Just like changing your diet or, you know, whatever, right. Like your location, if different things don't work out, keep trying because it's never going to be like a one-size-fits-all type thing rather than get discouraged um even therapists you know if you don't like the first three keep keep looking because that perfect fit will be there and that makes such a huge difference and then honestly and this is going to sound so old, old school and my fiance makes fun of me a lot because I'm like if I said I lived in the middle of nowhere in like a hut <laughs> in like the trees I would say take regular like screen time breaks or get off of social media for a a chunk of a time. If you're feeling really low, um, refresh, get to know yourself again, you know, and, um, figure out the things that make you happy, whatever that looks like, you know? So Paige in the last few months leading up to her passing talked about ice skating and wanting to like go take lessons and how we had gone and done that. And I had completely forgotten that we had done that a handful of times in her childhood but she wanted to do that and then was like, oh, well, why would I do that? That's dumb. And I think we've really done a disservice to especially our young people with this idea of like hustling all the time. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think not everything needs to be a profitability thing. You know, you can like something just to like it and bringing back that sense of play. Um, you know, she wanted to do that. It's like, I wish she would have just done that because for all we know, she would have loved doing that one hour a week or two hours a week. And just that could have been her thing. Um, but she was just trying to get by, you know, working different jobs and trying to keep up. And also it's all about having to be the best at whatever you try at. Like if you want to take lessons as an adult, it's like, well, that's dumb. I'm an adult. Like it's not like I'm going to go to the Olympics or anything like that. Um, a lot of us, I've seen memes about this, you know, anyone who was like in a gifted program, you know, growing up, we always think like, oh, we have to be the best at everything. Or yeah. Else, what's the point? Um, as well as anyone with kind of like anxiety or OCD tendencies, right? It's like, oh, if I can't be perfect, then what's the point? And that's really sad um, because there's something really right. therapeutic. And I've only just recently experienced this having a three-year-old 
that when I really get into like that zone of playing with him and I really let myself get like silly and like out of my comfort zone, but you know, just like kind of wacky and I'm laughing or running around all crazy in the yard or something like I'm three years old again, even the how ridiculous I look and sound, I end up laughing at myself and that completely releases like tension, even in my body that I didn't know I had. And one thing about my sister, and I mentioned earlier, you know, that at the end of her life, she was 88 pounds, but she always had like back aches and, you know, always different things I would say physically manifesting in her. And it almost carried on her physically, like it almost weighed her down. And even in her eyes, um, and anyone who's seen a picture of her, she had these huge, huge, huge brown eyes. Um, and you could see all of her emotions on there. And I mean, there were times that they just looked not quite empty, you know, but just so sad. And I just wish that like more young adults and more people in that, or just people in general who feel that way sometimes, right? Like just weighed down and overwhelmed by so many things, but also their own um, mental well-being and, and emotional health that you'd find whatever it is that like sparks that light up again in you and and do that because it's so crucial. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody in your situation who has an extremely close loved one who has committed or has, who has died by suicide and is just grieving? You know, when it first happens, it, it was not something that I thought I wanted or needed. I thought I wanted to just be like left alone for a week. Um, and I'm deep down very much an introvert. So one thing about introverts is like, we like tend to usually want to process kind of alone first um and yet everyone like stormed my house (laughs) for like a day or two or three and it actually ended up being what I needed um from the minute you know we found you know she was found and everything it was like onto business almost like signing paperwork and things because my mom was in Georgia so for me specifically um it was very go 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 like paperwork you know details things like that. And so to have friends who didn't, I don't even know if they called or texted, but who just like showed up at my house was actually very meaningful. And the friends that came and just right. like literally laid in bed with me the morning after or the day, you know, two days after, um, I'll never forget that. Um, and we had some family friends. So, so that, you know, just being there, being present, especially that first few days, but also then when it came to like logistical things. So we were so lucky and Paige was so lucky and so loved. Um, that first week, there were things planned that I remember just being like, yes, no, you know, pink, whatever. Like, I don't even know what was happening, but there were people taking care of a lot of those little details, um, even calling around funeral home and things for us. Right. And I'll never forget that either. Um, but I would say after that first month is when it all really just drops off and that's typical I think for any loss but I would say like month two three four or five (laughs) um for me were the harder ones by far than the first month you know I think people I don't know how to explain it but it was like I remember basically crying to my partner like almost screaming and being like I wish people would just ask me what I need because I appreciated people stopping by right but remember, I'm, you know, 2020, I'm working from home. I got the three-year-old and I'm like, now I have to clean my house, have you come over. And I feel like I have to host you. So now I'm spending energy just hanging out. And in reality, what I really need is for you to take my son and go play water guns with him outside or something to make him tired. And 
let me cry in the shower openly, like weep in right. the shower because I haven't done that in two months and it's festering. Um, what I need right. is for you to send a cleaning person to my house. <laughs> like, you know, asking that person, like, what, what do you need or what would make grief a little bit easier for you? If people ask someone who's experiencing this grief, you know, what would allow you to process this a little bit easier? Some people might say you sitting next to me or meals, or I need to be alone, but can you handle my kids just for an hour or, you know, whatever. And then also, um, sending, if you knew the person that passed away, or even if you didn't sending, keeping their memory alive. So some of my favorite text messages and things have been when her friends have texted me and just said, Oh, I heard the song and I thought about her because of this memory. And here's some pictures, or I had a dream of her last night. You know, those things blow me away. Or even people who didn't know her, who will say, Oh, I did this. and made me think about her because you told me she loved cooking, you know, and you're like, Oh, like, thank you. And some of my closest friends often also reached out to my partner, which I'm very thankful for because I think he needed at times just a little bit of that, like, Hey, how are you doing? You know, like dealing with the stranger in your house that's like a different person. Right. So for anyone who's experiencing the suicide loss, you know, or, or they call it survivors of suicide loss, um, highly recommend, like thousand percent game changer is getting involved in, for me, it was virtual because of everything going on, um, getting involved in like support groups, but specifically for survivors of suicide loss. So there's a handful in the country, but they meet, you know, all over the place. Um, because it's, again, that's such a specific kind of grief. So that was really helpful. And then I did a lot of research. I actually saw, um, I think one or two different therapists that were grief therapists and yet completely unhelpful for my Mm -hmm. situation. Like, like completely did not resonate with me at all. And then I did a lot of research and found one who she, the one I currently see, she's actually dealt with three suicides in her family, two of which were siblings. So she really understands game changer for sure. It doesn't, you know, it gets easier, but it never gets easy. Right. And I, I just wanted to comment on what you said about the things, some of the things that you appreciate the most were people keeping her memory alive and sending you messages and pictures. I think a lot of times people avoid talking to somebody after suicide because they feel like it's a really sensitive topic and they don't want to be, they don't want it to seem like they're being nosy or they, they also don't know if they're going to make the situation worse. And so it's really eye opening to me to realize that you want them to talk about that person. Like the most hurtful times the last, you know, eight months have been even within close friends and family has been like being out or visiting with people I haven't seen for months and months and months. And we talk about everything, you know, politics, business, physical health, whatever. And yet mm-hmm. not one person can say like, Hey, how are you doing with this suicide loss? Or how, you know, what do you, what do you miss most about her? Or tell me something about her that, you know, was funny or a good memory. And I remember specifically sitting at dinner and this happened. And I was thinking to myself, we can talk about everything else. And yet not once is her name brought up and she just died like six months ago. I remember in my head thinking, what's the point? And by no means am I, was I suicidal at this point, but I was thinking, what is the point of us living if after we're gone, like no one talks about it? Like, like what is the point, you know, if, 
like we're too afraid to talk about people once they've passed um I don't know how to explain it. I remember just being like so baffled by that because I think once you've experienced death, it becomes a little bit less taboo. Like you're a little bit more like, okay, like it happens. So it's, I can't let that person slip away. And I'm, you know, we're going to, if this restaurant reminds me of that person, I want to be able to say that and not make everyone feel uncomfortable. I'm so glad that you sort of clarified that because I think Mm -hmm. I could totally see myself doing that, like completely avoiding the topic just because I, I'm afraid that that's the wrong thing to do. So I think it's really important for us to understand that. And it inspires me to really uh, want to reach out to people, even if the loss happened three, four, five years ago, because that grief is never going to go away. And like you said, the support that you get, which is so strong in those first couple months, that goes away. But you have to stay with, you know, you live with the grief forever. 